Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. The sun is shining today, so that is a welcome change. Yeah, it's shining on your newly red hair. It is. Yeah, I got a little crazy this weekend. Oh, so. that's all right. That's you right. Guys, I'm sure... Everyone on Twitter will have to hop over and look at my new hair. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure you're not the only person in the pandemic that has done something uh, different with their hair. Oh, I'm sure. It at least terrific. I didn't cut bangs. That's been like horror stories throughout the pandemic. Yeah, I, I just don't have much to cut, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> I spent the whole weekend watching those crazy football games. I don't know if you watch football at all or not, but it was insane. I do not, but my Facebook feed was blowing up about how spectacular everything was. So, yeah, the games on Saturday were were you know, you're like, oh, these were good games. And then Sunday came and you're like, wow, what the heck did I just watch? It was insane. <laughs> yeah, I heard there were fireworks in Kansas City. Yeah, lots so. of fireworks. I don't know. They scored like three touchdowns in the last like two minutes of the game or something crazy like that. It was oh, wow. it was completely insane. It was, uh, I don't know, it was like a basketball game on outside in the cold weather. And I don't, I don't know, it was weird, but never seen anything like it, but it was fun. There's a first time for everything, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, we have another awesome guest on today. Yeah, super excited. Um, um, happy to have Adi Shah on with us today. Please go ahead and introduce yourself to our guests. Hi, Rick. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And before I introduce myself, yes, some of us are losing hair. So uh, you having hair to color, that's that's a good thing. Anyways, my name is Adi Shah. I am an infectious disease doc here at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And I'm excited to do this podcast. I've been talking to Sarah and Rick as to how much I love their podcast. And I'm uh, thrilled to be here to talk to them about my journey in medicine. My interests include antimicrobial and diagnostic stewardship and infection prevention and control. And I also like to make jokes on Twitter. So social media is something that I like to use to take myself not too seriously. Thanks for, for having me. Yeah, we're super excited you're here um, to, to join us. And thanks for the plug on the podcast. We're glad you enjoy it. Uh, hope everybody does. Um, so a, a very Midwest thing to do is to talk about the weather, right? I remember <laughs> I went up to Mayo to interview for, mm. um, I think it was for residency. I won't say when, because it wasn't just recently, not even a <laughs> century, but that's all right. Um, and I just remember it was as I was just freezing and people had, you know, you have to plug in your car. So it starts in the morning with block heaters and everything else. So how does one that's not from Minnesota get used to that? Um, you trust your body, your body gets used to it. Believe it or not, this winter so far, I've not yet had to wear gloves. Uh, I, I, I grew up in Mumbai, India, where the weather was 90 degrees and humid for most part of the year. 
but then I moved to Chicago. I lived there for five years before moving here in Minnesota. So I am used to it by now. A key here and a pro tip is that always have cover over your parking uh, because without that, you will have to add 15, 20 minutes to your commute time in the morning. So I've been smart like that. Um, I may or may not have made that similar mistake when I initially moved here. So <laughs> now I'm wiser um, and just used to it. And there's there's joy in the cold as well. And in some time you get used to it. Interestingly for our fellowships, um, they tend to not do interviews in the winter so that um, it's it does not become even more difficult to attract people to the tundra here. So yeah, you just get used to it. Yeah, we, I think, are supposed to have like an Arctic vortex this week. So I'm mm. sure you guys will get hit with that before it is down our way. Yeah, the, yeah, the Arctic vortex. When I was in Chicago, I think in 2013, we got hit with the polar vortex that time. That was my first year in Chicago. And I, I was living in an apartment there. And I'm like, I need to go out and check out what this polar vortex is about. Very naive in my head, very immature, almost sort of stupid of me. But I went out. <laughs> I did not have gloves. I had like, um, like mild to moderate frostbite on my hand. And I had to literally run to my apartment and put my hand under like super hot water for several minutes before it got close to having feeling in the fingers. So yeah, the, the Arctic vortex reminds me of the polar vortex. And um, after that, I was a little bit more logical with my decision making. Um, but yeah, the cold, now I'm used to it. As I said, I don't need gloves anymore unless it's like negative 10 or negative 15. Good for you, that's awesome. You could live in Nebraska too. So I've been told. <laughs> I know so... at UNMC, I know. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did for fellowship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's great. It's, uh, did you do your fellowship at Mayo then? I did do my fellowship at Mayo. Yes. I moved here in 2017. Um, and then it's a three-year fellowship after which, uh, they decided to hire me. So I got hired in July of 2020 in the, in the midst of it all. So it's been interesting. It's been interesting. Nice. So, um, did you, uh, you, you guys have a three-year fellowship. Some of the places mm -hmm. have two years or three years. Is, um, is, is the clinical year, when we did it, it was the first year was clinical. And then the second two years were mostly kind of some kind of a research, try to get some kind of a grant funding or something. Is that similar to what Mayo does? Um, a little similar, but you don't have to get your own funding. They, they fund your third year as well. And you can tailor your fellowship based on what you want. Some people who like to do bench research do the first year's clinical, and then the second year is entirely researched by doing a call weekend here or there. And then the third year is a mix of both. For me, I would not survive for one year without seeing patients. I love seeing patients. So, and my research is more clinical research. So my first year was clinical and then second year was half clinical, half, half research. And so was my third year. So yeah, it's been good. It was, it's, it was one more year than other programs, but I decided to come here because I wanted to work with Dr. Jack Ohoro and Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar, who are like really heavy in the infection prevention and control and antimicrobial stewardship space. So yeah, I decided to come here. Um, a lot of it was also, if you told me in 2006, when I started my med school in India, that in 2017, I'd be at Mayo Clinic training, I would not have believed you. That, that just was so much of a dream 
um, and it came true. So I'm very thankful. Yeah, I was going to ask you going back to when it all started. So you've been mm -hmm. a faculty member now for 18 months or so, yes. roughly. Yes. Um, but your journey started years and years and years oh, ago. Yeah. So medical school in Mumbai or where yes, did you go? In, in Mumbai, 2006. Um, 2006 to 14 years later. Yes. You're getting a job at the Mayo Clinic. So yes. It, 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 yeah. Um, so my um, my my father is an orthopedic surgeon and my mom is a physical therapist. Um, I did not suit the personality of an orthopedic surgeon. So I decided to go into the more thinking field of internal medicine. I started med school in India in 2006. I actually never wanted to come to the US, but in 2011, some of my uh, co-med school, uh, other medical students, my friends um, decided to come over to the U.S. to do some uh, foreign medical uh, student electives or rotations. So I came here in 2011 for that, did a month in New Jersey, Camden, and did a month in LSU, Shreveport. And I was just blown away by the facilities available. And what attracted more to me to the U.S. was the style of learning was very similar to what I thrive in, a more collaborative approach and not a hierarchical approach where asking questions is okay. So I decided that, okay, I changed my mind. I want to come to the US to do my future training. So, you know, you do your USMLEs, your step one, step two, CK, da, da, da. Then I came to Chicago to do some volunteer research at University of Chicago where they then asked me to work on this, uh, th this project of health services research to provide better uh, health services to disparities. And when I was there, I also did what's called as a summer program in research training, just basic stats and epidemiology. And after that, um, I matched at one of the programs in Chicago, University of Illinois Advocate Christ Medical Center, uh, that provided with an excellent training and background to then apply at Mayo Clinic. I was very fortunate to meet the right mentors and I did my fellowship here. And before you know it, 14 years are over and they hire you on staff, which I personally would not have dreamt. Till the day I applied, I would not have thought they would pick me, honestly, because um, yeah, I just feel, I still feel like an imposter, honestly, I do. Um, uh, so it's still a, it's still sort of a surreal dream to work here and things have just gone in the right direction and I've been very fortunate to have luck and good mentors uh, in my corner. I think it's more than luck. There's a lot of hard work in there as well. D there and is, but, uh, but Sarah, 20 something percent of foreign medical graduates who apply to residency in the U.S. get into residency. So that's about two to three out of 10. So are those other seven not working hard? I, I don't think so. So I do think it's a lot of luck. I do think there's a lot of um, decisions that I look back that I made, which turned out to be correct. Um, so I, it, there is hard work, no doubt, but there, the other 70% who don't match in residency are also, I think, working maybe harder than me or as hard as me. So I think it's a mix of both, honestly, for foreign medical graduates is tough and getting tougher with the pandemic. Last year's match was the lowest FMGs ever for a long time because of the pandemic and 
all the visa rules and the number of times I've come close, this close to being sent back home. <laughs> it's been, it's been many times, many times. So no, I appreciate your sentiment that, yeah, I had to work hard, but I also think it was a lot of luck. Well, we're yeah, glad we're you are still here. No, thank you. I am glad too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of um, one of our good friends and former fellows is a big advocate for um, the situ sort of situation that you're in. Uh, you know, here as a, a visa or resident alien or what, mm -hmm. you know whatever, and just the difficulties of getting green cards and and being mm -hmm. able to work, and especially in fields where Raj, there, there's Raj. a need. Yeah, Raj. Kamitev. Yeah, I know him. Yeah, I you know. Him. I figured you would know Raj well. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I mean, and Raj is a great, great guy, great doc. Um, you know, I, I certainly would love to have him come back here and, and join us again someday. But I mean, just the difficulties, it just adds stress to what you guys are already having to do that's stressful in itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the, as I was telling Sarah, the number of times where it was either do this or you're on the next flight, there have been at least five to six incidents like that. And that's oh just not that's just not a healthy way for your brain to function. Mm -hmm. And after things are working out now and I got the job here and I'm immigration is going, I think, okay for now, you just get into that mentality of thinking every life decision as this or something bad's going to happen. And that's a bad way of thinking. So a challenge for me has to not focus on things that are not in my control uh, with immigration. And I've just sort of now been like, okay, I'm working hard, I'm publishing papers, and I love taking care of patients. And if by that things work out for me, cool. If they don't, then we'll figure it out. But I'm not going to obsess over that every day. Easier said than done. I'm trying. I don't think I'm successful at that, changing that type of thinking, but I'm trying. That's all we can do, right? Exactly. Make an effort. Exactly. So I'm curious, when you started medical school in Mumbai, mm -hmm. uh, did you always want to go into infectious diseases or was that something that kind of evolved over time? That evolved over time. I loved tropical diseases and I loved to see patients and manage patients with diseases like malaria, dengue, uh, hepatitis um, and stuff. So I always was interested in diseases like that. And then once I came to the US, my choices were either infectious disease or critical care because of my interest in antimicrobial stewardship. Because in my residency or in all my time in the US, I've seen several patients on the, you know, Vank and Piptazo, Vank and Cefepime and Metronidazole for whatever reason. And I started asking my question, myself questions, why are these patients on these broad spectrum antibiotics? And uh, most of them were critically ill in the ICU and the justification was quote unquote, my patient is sick. And that is not a good justification unless you have evidence for that. So then I met my mentors here who are dual trained in infectious disease and critical care. I also met Dr. Kelly Cockett. I was very close to joining UNMC too because I really liked the work that she was doing. I met Dr. Khalil, if I remember correctly. He was also mm -hmm. um, heavily into this sort of stuff. So I wanted to do both critical care and infectious diseases, but uh, the extra training and critical care was mostly for research purposes. So Mayo offered me something where I could do research in critical care patients from an infectious disease lens. 
And that's why I chose it. And frankly, I was getting burnt out by the whole training experience. So I said, I, I don't want to do more boards and more training. And though I like it, in my residency, I did a ton of ICU work. I'm good now. I will do research in ICU patients, but I don't want extra training. Yeah, it is a lot of training. And I think mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, can be, as you said, difficult to figure out where you actually, where's your home? Where do you fit in? So, I mean, mm -hmm. I love critical care too. I mean, you know, it's, it's that trying to help really sick patients, I think is, uh, mm -hmm. it's very intellectually uh, stimulating, but also very gratifying when, you know, you can help people get better. Exactly. Exactly. So, so um, infection prevention. So we were just talking before the show started, we call us ICAP, you guys mm -hmm. call it IPAC in Minnesota. Yeah. So um, what's your involvement in, in IPAC in Minnesota and what's your passion at in uh, um, infection prevention? Well, in infection prevention and control as everybody may know, it's just been COVID, 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 COVID. My interest in diagnostic and antimicrobial stewardship ties in well to CLAPSIS, CAUTIS, and correct definitions of CLAPSIS, CAUTIS. VAPs or ventilator-associated pneumonias or ventilator-associated episodes so far are not mandatable, reportable events, but they will soon be. So I do a lot of critical care uh, stakeholder engagement for proper definitions of that and diagnostic stewardship to make sure that unneeded blood cultures from lines or urine cultures from foleys or um, airway specimens are not sent so that we don't inappropriately diagnose stuff and then inappropriately quote unquote treat these patients. So that's where my interest sort of ties into diagnostic and antimicrobial stewardship. But COVID man, the last year and a half is uh, every day. It's the, the amount of information that you are expected to keep in touch with and then making decisions by teams calling you saying, this person's been on isolation for 20 something days and they're not doing too well, but their family member wants to visit you. And then you are supposed to be that one person who makes the call of whether they can see their family or no for isolation stuff. It's just, uh, it's, it's been very difficult, honestly. It's been, it's been a very steep learning curve and all of us have learned it sort of by the go, by keeping in touch with the literature the new therapeutics, the new pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis. We also work very closely with occupational health in infection prevention and control. So a lot of our work overlaps with them as well. So protecting employees, um, arranging for employee testing. Um, I'll give you an example, March, 2020, when I was a third year fellow, when this all started, right? We had to bring up a drive-through testing site for COVID patients two or three days after Minnesota saw its first COVID case. And um, me and some of the fellows were helping, but I was like the fellow that was helping some of the staff uh, arrange for the drive-through testing site. And just the logistics of how are we going to test probable positive COVID patients in a drive-through ensuring safety of the employees without knowing anything about this disease that was just incredibly tough. We then set up sort of a trailer park type 
testing site up behind one of our hospitals for pre-procedure testing because we didn't know how it's going to go if we test these patients in the hospital and we do so many pr procedures. So in setting that up in March in the middle of snowstorms was <laughs> as, and um, making sure that we do right by our employees, protect everybody was tough, but, but it was also exciting. And we wrote some of this up also. And I, I think it has been helpful for other centers also to set up these drive-throughs, but stuff like that is what interested me, especially in IPAC. The, on the toes thinking that you have to do without having much information. Um, and because of COVID work, as so many of um, um, your colleagues may attest to this also, the county Clapsy work has suffered because of all the resources diverted to COVID. So now we are looking at that again, seriously. So in, in I'm, I'm talking too much now, but essentially diagnostic and antimicrobial stewardship ties in so well to infection prevention and control. And then you under identify your stakeholders in the ICU who then help you um, achieve your academic interests in other fields too, other topics. That's awesome. And you're not talking too much. That's exactly the point of this show is for you to be able to talk. Okay, great. <laughs> they, they hear from us every week. They don't need to hear from us. Anymore. Okay, I will, I will talk, uh, but please, please raise your hand or make a sign that I have to stop and I, I will. <laughs> no worries. Well, the good news is someday when the pandemic is over, we will have all survived it. And then maybe it won't be so stressful for everybody. I know. What would I give to just grab a burger and a couple beers with with colleagues without fearing if one of us will be infected and not be able to staff service next week? It's just, yeah, sorry, side point. <laughs> Different world, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Um, question. So you talked about kind of diagnostics. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is um, with um, antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention is that so much has gone over to like for COVID, we do PCR testing, right? And you can get a respiratory pathogen panel. Mm -hmm. There's a pneumonia panel. There's a meningitis panel. There's, you know, film arrays that do blood cultures and everything else. And so, um, so oftentimes, especially in non-sterile locations, you get junk, you know, mm -hmm. What does it mean? So yep. I think as a as somebody that's involved in infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship, that that has to be an area that you're looking at because you want to yeah. get these tests, you get the results quick, yes. right? Yes. And, and and you're not waiting around 48 hours for culture and then another 24 hours, you know, for a sensitivity panel. You can at least get some idea, and then if you have a good antibiogram, you can have an idea what you want to treat really early, and you're not on Vank and Meropenem for three days mm -hmm. while you're figuring this out. But mm -hmm. how do you separate the junk out from what's real? And, and what advice do you give to people that as these tests are rolled out everywhere? Because they're going to be everywhere. So I tell people, usually my rule of thumb to our explanation is that if you don't know what to do with the result of a test, then don't order it. Or if you order it, <laughs> then seek expert consultation or curbside recommendations to see if you should order it. So that ties then into should they even order it, first step. So at our shop, we've tried to restrict stuff like GI pathogen panels and even C. diff testing for repeat C. diff testing to ID 
approval only. So they have to call some of us or whether that be a fellow or IPAC or stewardship people to order that. We also recently did a project looking at the yield of airway cultures. Like when they do a bronch, just by default, they test for everything, you know, gram stain, bacterial culture, fungal stain, fungal culture, AFB stain, mycobacterial culture, this and that. So we actually looked at about 300 something patients and saw that of the 4,000 something days that uh, specimens were held for fungal culture, uh, treatment changes were made only in two of those patients. And each fungal culture is held in the lab for 29 days. So we engaged stakeholders who are ordering these, whether that be anesthesia, pulmonary critical care, and then we made changes in our EMR by saying that if you're ordering an airway culture, a lot of this is also because one click makes you order everything. So we are, we are making sure that that does not happen. So making EMR changes are important to make sure that certain things are ordered. Like for example, if you order a, a PCP will be pre-checked if it's an HIV patient or a patient on immune suppressive medications, otherwise it will not be pre-checked. A fungal culture, myco, a fungal and mycobacterial culture will not be pre-checked. If you're ordering only the bacterial specimens will be, will be pre-checked. Um, and then uh, we thankfully are, uh, are, are, are blessed with good amount of staff who can take these phone calls to your point of how we would change this in sort of your run of the mill community hospitals in our country is just going to need more staff. And therein lies the utility of showing the powers that be how important infectious diseases is to save the hospital money or resources and to save patients unneeded exposure. Um, so to your point of how do you deal with uh, results of a test, firstly, I think we need to change how providers order tests and restrict them, or if we cannot restrict them, use EMR and artificial intelligence to pre-check or not pre-check stuff that a patient may or may not need. I think that's critical. If we do that, then we'll have reduced number of situations where what do we do with these results? And then obviously stuff like meropenem or vancomycin, we have our CBAM, which is an antimicrobial monitoring system here. It flags if a patient is on an overtly broad spectrum antimicrobial agent without culture um, indication for that. So we've built in flags uh, and our ID pharmacist, Ryan, Ryan Stevens has been super critical in doing that. Uh, but we only have one ID pharmacist who does that inpatient. So we need more um, essentially increasing staff but I think till we do that, leveraging EMR is important, I think. And there's agent things we can do to prevent unneeded testing. That's awesome. One of my mantras is always make it easy for people to do the right thing. Exactly. So and you know, make it really difficult that. to do the wrong thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is EMRs have been more of a repository of, of, of information and a billing tool than it's been to use a tool. I think medicine has been slow to adopt yeah. um, the ability to use it to do those things right. as, a, as opposed to a way for systems to bill as much as possible and to make it easy to document what is needed. to. That's such a great point. If we <laughs> almost seems like if we um, ask a biller to help us best, better use EMR, they'll come up with better strategies than us because we are so focused on care for the patient. 
uh, but billing systems are focused on maximizing or minimizing certain metrics. Um, so they may have better better resources to do this than us, but we are trying here, we are trying. Um, I think we are doing okay, but nowhere near where it should be. Yeah. So I am curious, um, with your interest in antimicrobial stewardship, do they have some sort of equivalent in India? That's that. a great question. So recently we published a paper in Itchy called Interest Study, where we, uh, in 2018, we surveyed 65 plus hospitals in India looking for uh, just a survey of providers as to where the problem lies with antimicrobial resistance, what are avenues for improvement. And it seems like the two, three major issues in India for uh, stewardship are lack of EMR, so if a patient's coming in with say fever and hypotension and tachycardia, they can't just log into the chart and see what their past cultures were. So they are obliged to go broad bank and meropenem to begin with. Second is microbiological diagnostic facilities like Rick was mentioning, PCR and biofires and panels. Not every hospital in India has that, only the tertiary of the tertiary hospitals have that. And um, uh, number three is easy availability of over-the-counter antibiotics. I could walk in to a pharmacy in India and get an oral carbapenem, uh, and that is horrible. Uh, that is scary. So I think these are the three main issues. And then lastly, just the amount of burden on the providers there. When one person is taking care of 40, 50 patients, it's really hard to think about stewardship uh, when that happens. So an avenues for improvement could be um, like something like, some. this is something I've thought of as well, to leverage something like the Gates Foundation grant to see if we can we can enroll a small group of healthcare consortiums and give them access to better microbiological facilities and EMR to see if that improves stewardship or antimicrobial resistance issues there. Lastly, simple stuff that we take for granted here, like internet, right? We also surveyed those providers there. How do you access stuff like up to date to see what are your, or guidelines to see what is your number one uh, recommended agent for say pyelonephritis with a gram negative bacteremia without knowing the ID. They have to use their own data to get that. So simple stuff like that is lacking. And I think um, that if those things are improved, then they may be able to uh, do a better job um, or better, not better job. I think they are doing a good job. Just they may have better resources to uh, judiciously use antimicrobials there. But we also have to remember that India as a country has only become independent in 1947. So it's a relatively young country. Um, and till the, the techno, the one silver lining, so um, uh, if you want to say it like that of COVID is that there may have been a technological jump in the sense that now facilities like internet may be better there. So I hope they can leverage that and make some dent in antimicrobial resistance there. We see so many patients who come here from not just India, but the Middle East and Africa were colonized with drug resistant bacteria and it's really hard to manage if those then get into the blood and cause issues. Yeah, and I think if there's nothing we haven't learned from the COVID pandemic, it's, and then, you know, Ebola before that or whatever, it's that we're a very global planet now. And so it's important that 
we have good health systems everywhere to help mm-hmm. everybody. It's like, you know, back in the day, you used to think, well, that doesn't bother us. That's in Africa or India or whatever. Mm-hmm. But clearly, that's not the issue anymore. Yeah, one of my presentations from fellowship uh, was uh, ta- was a case report called East Meets, East Meets West. Uh, this 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 patient diagnosed with new hematological malignancy literally takes a flight and comes here to Minneapolis and then comes here to Mayo. And then in two weeks, they have NDM, uh, E. coli bacteremia, and then managing that. So as you said, it's literally 15 hours away. And if you don't have good infection control practices, then mm-hmm. you can have an outbreak in your facility, right? We, we've been investigating that. Absolutely. KPC, stuff like that, you know, using the same scopes for other patients. And I hope that we are doing it here. I'm, you guys are doing it there. But I, I hope that your three, 400 bed community hospital has access to IPs or IPAC departments to do all these things because it's here it's it's at our coast as i said just 10 15 hours away yeah and it's also important to remember like you said the covid pandemic has also increased our technology usage right mm-hmm. so not only are the diseases global but we're able to get those resources mm-hmm. absolutely so. but just like right now we're on zoom you're on Zoom. I've met so many people on Zoom um, via Twitter, just catch-ups that I hope I can meet in person someday. But yes, you're right. Yeah, we'll have to put uh, Rochester, Minnesota on our travel list. We're getting a bigger travel list now. We've got, uh, I can't even remember all the locations we're supposed to take the, the dirty drinks bus to, but uh, we'll have to get that figured out. <laughs> yeah, then you can make like a video log or a, or a vlog, as they say, and make your own YouTube channel and go to town, different towns with your bus. That would be fun. That would be fun. That would be fun. So the, the, the uh, Mayo system, I think your hospital is St. Mary's. What else do you guys involved in and covering with your infection prevention? Do you do something other sister facilities? Um, I assume like, I know you guys have facilities in Jacksonville and Scottsdale. I assume they have kind of their own ID. They have their own. Yes, they have their own. Every, even a small satellite center from Mayo has their own IPAC. Um, and once every two weeks or so, we have what's called as an IPAC situation update, which have been more frequent with COVID so that the, all the centers can be on the same page. And here in Rochester itself, we just don't have the St. Mary's. We also have the Rochester Methodist Hospital. And Methodist ha- is close to um, outpatient buildings in the Mayo building and the Gonda building. And St. Mary's in itself has seven, eight buildings. So um, it's a lot of work here locally. So the satellites have their own IPACs, yes. But there is sort of a communication between us over ever, ever so often to share updates and situations. Like recently, one of our uh, one of our sister or satellite hospitals were taking, were in a location where the Afghanistani refugees were coming and we had a measles outbreak there, right? So um, something that we've not, we've not seen here in a, in a while and we don't do pediatrics. So that was another interesting avenue for me to learn about measles related infection prevention and control, but they were managing it locally. But if some questions arose, then they always could reach out to, to the mothership, so to speak here. <laughs> yeah. Um, one question we try to ask all of our guests is what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? 
Ah, oh, interesting. For patient, patient-wise, or yeah, patient care-wise in the hospital, anything just yeah. related to medical care. So I, yeah, I'm going to. Uh, I don't know if you. So, so in 2018, I was on a flight back from um, Mumbai to here, and it had a stopover in London. It was Mumbai, London, London, Minneapolis. And on the London Minneapolis flight, I was, you know, getting, putting my earphones on, getting to bed. And then they said the whole, is there a doctor on board? And I went in front and this was this elderly gentleman who had blood gushing out of their eyes. Um, and uh, they had a recent uh, surgical procedure in the US, but they're just gone to London for a vacation. So we helped manage. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a nurse on board and an EMT on board as well. So all three of us tried to manage this uh, elderly gentleman's blood pressure. Uh, their blood pressure was very high. So we just asked passengers to give us some blood pressure medication. We used that. And then I fashioned this eye um, pack. So as you know, Rick, as internal medicine doctors, eyes, nose, ears, and throat don't come close to me. It, exactly. It, that's it, what I was saying. Scary. I was going to say, that's like the worst thing ever, a bleeding yes. eye. I mean, yes. I'm, I like, yeah. One of yes. my general mantras is to not cause bleeding that I can't stop myself. And so that would be definitely in that realm. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> that and pediatric patients. No, no can do. No can do. So uh, so I, we measured the blood pressure. There was systolics were like 200 something. So we gave the gentleman some blood pressure medication. And then we fashioned uh, this um, eye pack. You know, they give you those eye covers to, you know, make your eyes not exposed to light. Uh, we had a Ziploc bag, fill some ice in it and put it under the eye cover. And we had to have an emergency landing in Ireland um, at that point. Um, and then the, 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 the airline people uh, used sort of a walkie-talkie type device to talk to UPMC, who was the airline person for that airline and they were asking me what what this patient had and I gave you know I was a yeah I was a fellow then and I gave like a presentation essentially and he told me this is the most detailed anybody has ever been in like a <laughs> mid-flight emergency I said well that's what I do sort of for a living so we had to emergently land in Ireland and that patient was evacuated and then we came back uh, to the U.S. and in a week that patient showed up here in St. Mary's Hospital uh, and, uh, and they came here and they had some nice words to say about me and I visited them in their room and everything turned out okay. It turned out they had like a corneal rupture or something like that and their anterior chamber was filled with blood. So that's something, that is, that is something that, that's crazy happen, happened in, in medicine that, that was definitely interesting. Yeah. That could have I, been a movie. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was I, it was scary. <laughs> you hear those things on the plane, and you're kind of like, "Gosh, I hope somebody else answers." You know, <laughs> you know, I was different. I, 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 yeah, I think I still feel different because I trained in a hospital where we had a very busy ER, and I did I did a lot of ER rotation there. Um, and these sort of things are, um, are 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 challenging to manage. But it was just the eye bleeding eyes. Well, sitting behind you, you have some jerseys as well. So I yeah. um, assume you're a, a, a football fan, but a, a different kind of football. Yeah. So I, I like to call it football, but after I moved, everybody's like soccer. So I'm like, sure, <laughs> soccer. Oh, okay. So I've been a Manchester United fan for 
about 23 years. I liked all sports. Uh, my favorite U.S. sport uh, is baseball. Um, I, in 2016, when I was in Chicago, I went to 24 games at Wrigley Field, and they won all of those 24 games. They, they better start like having you under contract and have you go back. Well, if you know anything about Cubs fans, there's many like me. So um, <laughs> I also was there on game five of the World Series and then the championship series with the Dodgers as well, where Miggy Montero hit a bottom seven grand slam at three all. And then game five World Series, when the Cubs were three one down, they had to win three in a row, the first one in Chicago. I was at Chest in LA presenting a poster or something like that. And I, I showed up um, early and then went to that game. They won that game. I may still be paying back the ticket, but it was it was <laughs> it was worth it. Um, and that year, yeah, I'm a big, big baseball fan. And I thought they were going to form a dynasty, but that did not happen. The Cubs are not, they're still three, four years away again to challenge. But yeah, I like soccer. I like cricket a lot. I still follow everything there is to follow about cricket. I like baseball a lot, maybe a little bit basketball too, but my three main sports are cricket, soccer, and baseball. I have to admit I'm a Cardinals fan, so. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad for John Lester, who had to retire with the Cardinals, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. There's always next year, isn't that what the Cubs say? (laughs) (laughs) Touche, touche, touche. But, hey, I was there when they won it after 107 years, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we've won a few more than that. <laughs> you have, you have. And uh, but hey, my history in the US started in 2013. So hey, uh, nine years and one championship, that's okay. <laughs> the, the, that's a lot better better than the curse of the uh, you know, going back to 1908, something like that. Yeah, 1907, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, long time. <laughs> so since you're a soccer fan, have you seen Ted Lasso? I have. I have seen Ted Lasso, but I know everybody likes it and un- and maybe an unpopular opinion, but I've seen it. Have you seen it, Sarah? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You mm-hmm. have, yeah. So so Roy Kent, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So Roy Keane was a Manchester United player. Roy Keane was a Manchester United captain. And he's very close to my heart, Roy Keane, because he's won us several championships. And when I saw fun made of him, I was like, okay, this is entertaining, but it's Roy Keane we are talking about. So... Yeah, I saw it. I get it. It's funny, but uh, it's it's taking a dig at Roy Keane, who was my captain for many, many years. So I'm a little bit salty about that. But it's a good show. It's a good show. It's a very feel good sort of motivational show where you can take a lot of teachings from it to your regular life, too. So I like it. But Roy Kent. Yeah. Roy Keane. That's an actual person. Roy Keane. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. He's from Ireland. He's known to be this uh, very aggressive character. Um, Actually, I think in the 2002 World Cup, he was sent back home because he complained that their training facilities were very poor. So Roy Keane was a captain and he went back home. The coach at that time was Mick McCarthy. So Roy Keane is known as a very controversial sort of aggressive character. But he won several championships and he's known as one of the best midfielders ever in in soccer. So that's him. Very cool. Well, I learned something new today. There you go. There you go. I can go to bed now. (laughs) (laughs) Are you uh, reading or binge watching anything right now? I am. I don't know if you guys follow the Ozark series, but 
Oh man, that show is just ridiculous. Yeah. So I started watching the fourth season again. Um, I think they're going to release it in two, uh, two slots. So I, um, I'm watching the Ozark series now. I'm a big um, history and politics fan. And after moving to the U.S. in 2013, I feel like I have so much to catch up on U.S. history and U.S. politics that I'm devouring PBS documentaries of World War One, World War Two, the Civil War, all the elections, um, how the Supreme Courts are formed, how the councils are formed uh, leading up to 2016 and then 2020. So I watch a lot of PBS and break that up with uh, with uh, devious shows like Ozark um, and, and, and stuff. So I like Ozark kind of shows where uh, they show all the bad in, in human brains. Um, that's why I'm also a big fan of Breaking Bad. I've yep. seen it maybe five or six times. I actually went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, just so that I could do the Breaking Bad tour there. Um, um, so yeah, I like these type of shows. I also like reading reading a lot. I used to read a lot of newspapers when I was in med school because I did not have a television or I did not have an internet. All I had was the, you know, those old clunky iPods, the iPod mm -hmm. ATGBs, the black one. I had that in newspapers. And after I moved to the US and everything is on your phone and laptops now. So I like physical newspapers. So I've started reading again. So I, I read the New York Times cover to cover almost every day because um, I feel like that's way more relaxing than scrolling on your phone. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. Yeah, sounds good. I haven't made it to watch the new Ozarks yet. So yeah, I think it's two different mm -hmm. releases of seven episodes each. So I, I, I haven't gotten into that because we started another show um, called Your Honor. We just started watching that. I don't know if you've ever oh, seen Oh, Brian Cranston, right? Yeah. It's yeah. very good. It's yeah. very good. It has been good so it. far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brian Cranston is, 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 just, is just amazing. Um, yeah, I watched that show just because of Brian Cranston and I enjoyed it. Yeah, he's very good. I mean, he was great in Breaking Bad, obviously, but uh, but he's really good in this show. This show's uh, so you should far read really if you're good. a fan of him. You should read his biography. Uh, okay, it, it, it's interesting where he's come from and how how many challenges he's faced in life before he took off with Breaking Bad. I forget what it's called, but it's a quick read. You know, 200 pages. Um, you'll finish it in a couple of days. But uh, I love Brian Cranston because of his life journey too. Maybe we should discuss it on the show in an hour. Yeah, sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have any questions for us? We've tortured you for the last hour. No, this has been enjoyable. Um, yeah, as I was asking Rick and um, you, Sarah, uh, you guys are doing such a great job with this. Um, uh, how 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 much time do you take to edit this? As I said, I want to make something like this too. I use social media a lot to like make simple stuff like memes and jokes, but I also want to learn how to do this podcast. Do you spend a lot of time editing it? Um, I don't spend too much time editing it. Uh, usually the episodes are a little under an hour long okay. and um, I'll spend about an hour and a half editing one episode. Okay. So that's listening to the, the entire episode and then cutting out pauses and those sorts of things. The intro and the closing are pre-recorded, so they're just kind of like a drag and drop. Okay. Once I get everything edited together, and then um, we use Pinecast okay. as our platform, and then that was going to be my next. That, yeah. Is it a free free portal? 
it's it's paid okay but it's not super expensive okay it's okay. like a yearly subscription type thing and then they push your podcast out to all the different platforms so like we're on spotify and apple Podcasts and uh, four or five different other places okay okay yeah. all right and my uh, uh, my question to the both of you is uh could you tell me a challenging episode in your life, whether that be your personal life or patient life or work life and how you overcame that. I always want to learn from people how um, I just want, because oftentimes I feel that people think that, you know, life in medicine is easy uh, or, you know, you, you make a decent living, but I, I don't think enough people understand the challenges that go behind it. So I want to learn from you what has been a big challenge recently or in the past and how did you overcome it? That's a good question. That is a good question. Do you want um, to go first, Rick? Or do you want I me mean, to? I, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're talking about in life or in medicine, I mean, I think in medicine, I think the, the, the hardest thing for, for me was, uh, you know, er, early on in training, uh, you know, you go to medical school, you think you can help people and, you know, you're interested in the medicine, mm -hmm. the science, everything else. Uh, um, but you realize that uh, people get bad illnesses and they mm -hmm. actually die. Um, and so having to wrap your brain around that, and as, as a student, um, I don't know what the, going to medical school is like in India, but as a student, you know, you maybe have one or two patients a day that you see. And so you spend a lot of time with mm. those patients. And one of them, one of my patients early on when I was a third year medical student was on the pediatric uh, mm -hmm. rotation. Mm. Um, and it was a cystic fibrosis patient oh. that needed a uh, lung transplant. Um, and, uh, you know, she didn't end up getting it. And so, I, I mean, I would spend some time in the evenings, like playing cards with her because she was lonely, you know, she didn't, wasn't from here and didn't have, mm. uh, you know, people to come up and do things with her and she's a kid. And, uh, you know, and so I think those, uh, those types of situations, I think the, and, and, and hopefully the pandemic has brought to the forefront a little bit of the human toll mm -hmm. that, that doing this kinds of thing and see the, the things that people have to see and somehow cope with and still be able to come to work the next day and, and do the, you know, the right thing and be at their best selves in order to help other people. Um, it, it's trying, it's difficult. I think that's what our last episode was about a lot was about the mm -hmm. difficulties that yep. people have had with this, but it wasn't just the pandemic that had this. We, this is something that uh, healthcare providers of all types have to deal with pretty much on a daily basis. It's just amplified significantly the last couple of years. How do you deal with the emotional toll of that? As young faculty, I do a lot of onc ID and I see a lot of young patients with incurable cancers having horrible infectious disease complications. And I struggle with that. It takes a lot out of me so much so that after you go home, for me sometimes, then it's hard for me to give my 100% to my own family members because you're just so involved at work. I sometimes struggle with that. Uh, any tips on how to... I don't know, deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have any of the great answers. I mean, I think a lot of our approaches is to try to detach ourselves, mm. um, kind of try not to get that emotional attachment, which is is mm. difficult. Um, um, I, I, I don't really have a great answer for that other than I try to best as I can leave mm. work at work. Um, okay. And 
try to just completely sign out if you can, but you I mean, nobody can, you can't, yeah. there's no, no uh, way to do that. So um, I'm interested if any of our listeners have uh, things that they do, please share it in our chat with us, because I think this is a definite uh, topic, the mental health of, mm-hmm. of uh, healthcare uh, providers that uh, I think uh, bears some, uh, some discussion. Okay, thanks. How about you, Sarah? Um, So my technical training is in dental assisting. Okay. And um, dental assistants a lot of times aren't very well respected Mm. in their profession. So I spend a lot of time trying to just prove myself and continue to get educated. And eventually I just had to leave and move on. I guess that was me overcoming it. Um, just trying to get out of the toxic situations, um, and pushing myself to get more education and more education really helped me to kind of get where I am today and break out of that mold of being just a dental assistant and, Mm. you know, being able to help more people. Um, I'm really fortunate on the ICAP team to have such a supportive group of coworkers that, respect what I say when I have an opinion. Mm, mm. So um, I think, like you said earlier, just being able to collaborate with your team is so important. Mm -hmm. And there are so many places out there that don't have that, Mm -hmm. that type of uh, environment. That's such a great point you bring up, because sometimes I feel that in such situations, how people treat you tells you more about their character than about yourselves. But then it's hard for your own um, ego or what have you to like take that. So I guess just moving away from that situation to another collaborative atmosphere environment seems to be, seems to be the, the answer. But I hope as Rick said, after COVID people just understand that it's important to be nice and kind and it's free to be nice and kind. It does not cost you anything. Um, that's a that's a great point, Sarah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being on and joining us today. It was awesome thank getting you. to know you better. Yes, and hopefully I can join you on your party bus or with uh, with with dirty drinks. Hopefully soon. Sounds like a good plan. We'll we will work on that once we get this yes. pandemic solved. Yes. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Rick, for having me. Yes. Take care. Bye. So thank much. you. Bye. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us on this episode of Dirty Drinks, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and add into our conversation. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.